While you're taking your seat, why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 49. Uh, We're going to be reading and then discussing verses 1 through 16. And I I just want to throw this out here so that you can be looking for it as as we read uh, God's Word that... That uh, like, like it said on the front of the bulletin, uh, that Luther correctly said that the, the totality, all of life of a believer should be repentance. I want to take it even a step further and say not only should all of our lives be all about repentance, but should we, we should see it as God's great gift to us. Reconnecting with Him, repenting, or growing in grace, which is connecting in new ways to God, is, is what the vibrant, uh, joyful Christian life is all about. It's a beautiful, beautiful gift. So before we read God's word, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we pause now before we read your word to simply ask that you would meet us here by your Holy Spirit and witness by and with your word to our hearts that, uh, that we would be fed from you, by you, for you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Isaiah 49, 1 through 16. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, and his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said... I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet, surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It's too light a thing. That you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations. That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One. To one deeply despised, deplored by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise. Princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord In a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, Come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, and on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Cyrene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth, break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, 
my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. This is God's holy word. I'm talking about dates a lot today. 2017 now. Easily the worst year of my life. Early in that year, I lost my father. We were really close. He was, he was the best man at our wedding. I resigned as uh, senior pastor at Wallace Presbyterian Church, and it was not a happy ending. And a lot of that was my own fault. And I had to face that. And I had to see brokenness and darkness in me that I did not know existed. People that I love got hurt, not just me. And I lost a lot of fr- well, okay, friends, people I thought who were my friends who turned out to be something different altogether. 2017 was not a good year. But in 2017, God led me to this passage. And and it is done a healing work in my soul. It's, it's given me a new primer. Because if I had to look at my own brokenness and my own sinfulness on a, on a whole new level down, this has taken my knowledge and experience of the gospel down to that level, down to the depths. Because that's what the Christian life is all about. It's, oh, I'm, I'm disconnected in my relationship with God. I need to reconnect. That's repentance. Or My faith is not equal to the needs of the day. I need to grow in grace. I need to connect with God in newer or deeper ways. And that's a tremendous gift. And and this is a primer on precisely how to do that. Because what it does, first, is it lays out, kind of like in Revelation 7, our destination. Title of the sermon, therefore. We've got a place we're going, and it's a place of hope and perfection. It's a place of God's peace. It's, it's what the Hebrews meant when they had, spoke or wrote the word shalom. Things are the way they're supposed to be. The oughtness is gone. That's a beautiful thing. But this passage is also incredibly practical because it invites us to go, you know what, it's normal for you to get disconnected in your relationship with God and needing to be reconnected or to need a deeper connection, a new one, in a new way. And that happens individually and it happens corporally. It happens within us. It happens outside us, around us. It happens in our motives. It happens in the totality of our being. And there are three things this passage does for us that we're going to discuss briefly. The first is it tells us where we're going. It, it paints a beautiful portrait of that destination, that place of shalom. And then it helps us identify what gets in the way on our way to that destination. And then it tells us how to get there or to get back 
into that continuum of walking down the journey of redemptive history. So, where we're going, what gets in the way, how to get there. Let's dive in. We're going to take a big chunk at the first, verses 1 through 13. Um, There are three things that are, are three pieces to this that are laid out. First, the servant, and then the song, and then the triumph. And so we have in verses 1 through 4, take a look at it, and and look, that's a description of the Lord's servant, a mysterious figure that we know now to be Jesus Christ. This is the second of the servant songs in the prophecy of Isaiah. The first one is in Isaiah 42, and in that, what what he's laid out as is a compassionate and gentle Savior who's going to keep working until justice is established on the earth, and in a bruised reed, he will not break, a smoking flax, he will not snuff out. Now we get like a superhero kind of servant song. This guy has a mission. And the mission is a bullseye and he is the weapon. He is the polished arrow. And this mission is the most difficult mission in history. So difficult that the servant, capital S, already identified as deity, despairs of being able to accomplish his mission. And what we know the Lord Jesus, the struggle that he had, how he sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then, like it says here in verse 4, it says, but I, you know, my recompense is with my God. He he learned a new way to trust his Father. You know, it's it's not mistaken in Hebrews when it says that Jesus learned obedience. Well, how did he do that? By going to the cross. He'd always been obedient. This was his mission. And in the doing, it took him to new depths of experience. And that's exactly what's being talked about right here. So we've got this servant, and and the mission is difficult, but it's mission accomplished. And then in verses 5 through 7, we get a song. And And I call it a song because all of this is high Hebrew poetry. But here what we get is this almost lyrical kind of description of what? Of the gospel. It, it worked. We win. It says, I, I'm, I, I tell you what, this is so great and, and this is so powerful that it's not only going to save God's chosen people, the tribes of Jacob, the people of Israel, it's going to go all over the place. It's, it's good news about what the servant did. I mean, that's gospel loss, good news. That's exactly what's being talked about here. And then in verses 8 through 13, what you get is this panoramic vista of redemptive history in our place in it. Because the gospel puts us right into that pilgrimage. And in that pilgrimage, we're not going to be alone. We're going to to be provided for. We're going to be guarded. We're, We're going to get roads made for us so that we can travel them. We're going to have provisions made for us by this servant who's going to be with us every step of the way until eventually even creation has the curse of sin lifted from it and all is made new all is rejoicing and that is a beautiful beautiful hope filled picture and honestly if if what you're you know if you're here checking out what christianity is about i just gave you a pretty good thumbnail sketch it's about a relationship with a servant who knew we were broken and he still came and accomplished the mission of paying for our sins so that we could have a relationship marked by hope and an ever-deepening pilgrimage where that hope will someday perfectly and eternally be realized. That's, that's the Christian life. 
But there's something else about the Christian life. Main point two, what gets in the way. Take a look at verse 14 with me again. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. You know, I, uh, first time I, I that really let verse 14 sink in. It's such an abrupt, screeching halt to this march song of triumph. I, it made me think, it's almost like something Lemony Snicket would have put in, you know, this series of unfortunate events. Imagine a thousand fingernails on a thousand chalkboards with a thousand microphones and a thousand speakers making yours bleed. I, I because what, what is going on here is, hey, the servant won, and look where we're going. And Zion says, I'm not feeling it. I'm not there. As a matter of fact, you know how I feel? This is how I feel. Those words, forsaken and forgotten, they're fraught in the Hebrew Scriptures. They're used to describe a woman who's been rejected by her husband, or is bereaved and widowed, or... Also, and sometimes both together, a woman whose children are either dead or have forsaken her also, or she's childless. In other words, these are adjectives to describe the ultimate experience of destitution and desolation that a human can experience. So let me ask you a question. Why is this here? Especially in in light of verses 1 through 13. Why? I want to tell you, prepare yourself. Verse 14, let it feed your faith. Because part of Christianity, it was said really well by Francis Schaeffer when he said, Christianity is true to what is there. And and you know what this does? It says, no, 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 no. We're not going to just act like everything's okay and, and kind of sweep other stuff under the rug. We're going to look at the hard stuff too. And, you know, Isaiah was a prophet who told the truth, and he didn't cut uh, any corners on that. He went right for the heart. Back in chapter 1, we get an answer to the question, how can verse 14 be here? If you went back and you looked at chapter 1, I've kind of got a list here. You're going to find there are two reasons why Israel is in verse 14 condition, forsaken and forgotten. First, their inner spiritual condition, and then their circumstances. In verses 1 through 6, here's just a list of how they're described in their spiritual health. They're rebellious. They don't know God. They're a sinful nature, uh, nation. They're laden with iniquity. They're corrupt. They're, they're despise God and are utterly estranged from them. As a matter of fact, they're so spiritually sick that they're described as being on a deathbed for their souls. You ever taken a look in a mirror and seen that kind of desolation in your own heart? Maybe it's major, maybe it's minor. But all the time, we're straying, we're breaking that connection and needing to get reconnected to verses 8 through 13, that, that beautiful path of redemption. But our own hearts, you know, the, the hymn is right, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And then verses 7 through 9 of Isaiah talk about the circumstances outside. Their country is described as desolate. Their cities are burned. They've been invaded. They've been overthrown. And then it ends there saying, we would be just like Sodom and Gomorrah, except that some of us happen to survive. 
Bad times inside, bad times outside. Verse 14, I'm forsaken and I'm forgotten and it's my own fault. You know, there's a, there's a great book. I, I was reminded of it in thinking about this by the philosopher and theologian Cornelius Plantinga. And it's my favorite book title of any book I've ever read. Not the way it's supposed to be. Verse 14. Puts it right out there. And, you know, he does the best job of unpacking that shalom that I was talking about, that concept of a completed redemption, a recreation, a permanent, unbreakable connection to this servant that we have. We need to learn to acknowledge, okay, there is a lot of stuff going on in here that gets in the way, and there's a lot of stuff going on around me that ought not to be. And you know what? Sometimes that has me asking the big questions. Ask them. Verse 14 is beautiful because it says, go ahead, give it your best shot. Because, frankly, if Christianity isn't true, there are easier, less painful ways to live your lives. But if it's true and it invites us to face reality as it is, then it takes a step further in becoming more precious. It tells us what to do when we realize we're disconnected from this beautiful redemptive continuum. Take a look at verses 15 and 16. This is our third main point. How to get there. There, there are two metaphors given here, two word pictures that seem to be utterly disparate. They, they seem at first to have nothing to do with one another. Almost kind of like the Monty Python flying circus, and now for something completely different. Some of you got that. So we've got a, a nursing mother, and then we have the servant's palms engraved. I want to try to build a case that though they're very different, we desperately need both of them for them to have the Holy Spirit's intended effect in your life, on your faith. So let's, let's unpack these things. Um, okay, the mother. It says... Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? That, that, that word compassion, that, you know, maybe the hallmark would have picked a different word. More tenderness, more affection, more... We, we've got to unpack that word. It's already been used twice in this passage. Once in verse 10, it was translated as pity. And then in verse 13, compassion. You need to understand something else. Every time it's used in the Hebrew Scripture, it's always plural. Compassions. It, it was just a, a device the Hebrews used to emphasize things. It's, you know, put the yellow highlight marker on it kind of stuff. In other words, this is really intense compassion. But you also need to understand what that means and how it gets unpacked. It's used of God having a, a father's compassion on his children in Psalm 103. It's used here of the servant and a nursing mother having compassions on the infant at her breast. 
And I think maybe the best way for us to, to understand what this means is to go, okay, well, first, it's talking about a different facet, a quality of God's love, a different way to describe it. You know, uh, Hal and I, he mentioned we went to the same seminary. It's Covenant Theological Seminary. We're big, Presbyterians are, on the word covenant. And, and, and we get that word, and it's translated as a covenant sometimes, a steadfast love. It's as chesed. You know, it's, it's that bedrock kind of love. Hebrew scholar Alec Motier described that kind of love, steadfast love, this way. He said, uh, steadfast love is love in the will of God, what he has decided and how he has obligated himself to us. I'm going to reveal to you a major mistake I made in my theology that led to 2017 being the worst year of my life. I got that. I got steadfast love. I understood it. As a matter of fact, when you read the Psalms and it says, you know, remember your steadfast love, O Lord, for your namesake, I I got that a lot because I would say, yeah, Lord, remember that steadfast love, that commitment that you made to love me because it needs to be for your namesake because it cannot be for my namesake. I, I look in my heart and it doesn't take me long to experience loathing. And you know me to the bottom. And, and, and the only reason that you could kind of stay in this relationship is that you're, you're a God of your word. I get steadfast love. And that was what I thought the foundation of God's love was all about. And I was mistaken. It's not a steadfast love that's foundational to his love for us. It's his compassions. Listen to how Motier defines this word that we've translated as pity or compassions. He says this. He says that this word compassions is love in the heart of God. What he feels toward us. And what I began to understand is that part of my problem, and by the way, all of your problems at the root of it, they are theological problems. So just, just saying, throwing that out there. But, but here was my problem. It was his desire for me that was the foundation of his steadfast love. I mean, let me give you an example. I was listening to uh, Radio Lab. It's a, uh, it's a podcast. And uh, they were talking about desire. And they were interviewing a marathon, a world-class marathon runner from Eritrea, kind of like Kenya, you know, high mountains. This guy, you know, they, he was describing the rigors of his training, sometimes not being able to afford shoes, running marathons, barefoot in the mud kind of thing. He said, at, at one point he said, sometimes I hurt so much, my fingernail beds felt like they were on fire. And one of the interviewers just said, whoa, wait, why would you do that to yourself? And immediately this guy said, because I wanted to be the best marathoner in the world more than anything else. Let me ask you a question. Why did Jesus stay on the cross? You know, you can say, yeah, his steadfast love because he's committed. He's the servant, even though Gethsemane and, you know, the suffering that's talked about here. You know, he's, he's a God of his word. That, yeah. Why did he stay there? Because he wanted you that much. He wanted me that much. The mission was difficult for the servant because of who we are. 
or are not and should be. When we begin to understand that it's this desire that makes his steadfast love just rock solid, then you can begin. Then you can begin to learn what it's about, this engine of reconnecting to God, of continual repentance. That's what the Puritans called it. Not just repentance, but continually turning from ourselves, continually turning to God. Growing in grace the same way, always going deeper. And that is a great and wonderful and beautiful thing to know. But it's not enough. Because we've got the next metaphor in verse 16. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. The servant is saying, yeah, you know, in the other place, like, like it's, you know, you know that engraving, it's, it's like used in kings when they're building the temple. It is a hammer and a chisel. Instead of this time going onto stone, it's going into the palms of hands. And do you see what this means? This is something that's fed my faith so much because it says nursing mother that's my feeling toward you. And I feel that so deep, I am willing to go to hell on a cross for you. Now you see why we have to have them together. Because the action proves the emotion, the desire, the affection. And that... <laughs> That's how you become a Christian. That hits you that Jesus knew to you to the bottom and he wanted you so much he was willing to go to the cross and, and, he, and he wanted it so much he even scorned the shame of it because he wanted the joy of saving your soul. He wanted the joy of putting you into his own family as a beloved daughter or son. That's what he wants. And to say, okay, I believe that. I want that too. That's how you become a Christian. But it's also how you repent. And you know what else it does? When, when people are doing this on their own all the time, and it, it kind of spreads, kind of like Cal talked about the flu spreading throughout, you know, so don't, let's all be sure and use our Purell after we shook hands this morning kind of stuff. But you know, when it spreads like that, then things begin to happen. Things begin to fall in place. I, I really believe that the, the PCA Unity Fund, for example, is, is an example of God's Holy Spirit working in so many individuals' hearts that it becomes a corporate act of redemption. I can't tell you how many individuals, how many church leaders have said to me, I've been so burdened about this and I haven't known what to do. And then you come along. And look, it's just gospel stuff. It's, the, the math is not hard. You know, it's, it's, we've got that destination, Revelation 7-9. How do we reconnect? Well, this is a new way for me to love my neighbor as myself, and it connects me on that roadmap of redemption. It, historically speaking, like on the back of this card, this is the Grace DC Church Planting Network. Multi-ethnic church planters raise up multi-ethnic congregations. And historically, a more diverse harvest than the PCA has been able to reach so far. And that's a beautiful thing. But don't, don't just look at this on a corporate level. When you begin to understand this and experience it, 
a mother's compassion backed up with going to hell for me in action. Mission accomplished bullseye, oh, you polished arrow. Because you love me. (laughs) Tell me what to do. Here's my life. That's repentance. And it's where we find the joy of our salvation. And so why don't we exult in that a little bit in prayer right now? Let's pray. Oh, Father, um, this is pretty overwhelming to us. And we, uh, we, think, we think about that love. And, and um, would you feed our faith with this passage to help us to truly believe that we are your beloved Because we know from experience that that is what makes us love you more. That's what gives us the great heartedness to love the other, our neighbor, so different from ourselves. It's what gives us the heart to want to go out and proclaim this good news to everyone from the north and south and east and west. Because you're so worth talking about. You're so worth loving. And so we give you grateful praise and just ask for grace to love you more. And so we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.